Hello, and welcome to the Signpost Inn podcast, a space at life's crossroads to connect with God and find direction. Pour yourself a drink, grab a seat, and join us on the back porch for a friendly conversation about Christian prayer, spirituality, and faithful theology. My name's Matt. And I'm Brandon, and we're really glad you're here. The Signpost Inn podcast is brought to you by the Signpost Inn ministry, where we offer spiritual direction, retreats and sabbatical residencies, and lots of resources and training. You can find out more about what we do and support us by visiting signpostin.org. Hey, Brandon. Welcome to the Back Porch. Good to see you, Matt. You too. So this week, we're going to go ahead and continue with the interview with Father Joseph, right? Yep, that's right. And and this time around, he's going to be talking about uh, icons. He is actually a painter of icons. Um, for the nerds out there, uh, sometimes people like to call it writing icons, and we'll actually talk about that and see what the difference is. But uh, just just take it for now that he doesn't care whether you call it writing or painting, but he does icons. Yeah, I, f- I found this interview, this section, really interesting because this is, I think, the, the thing that I knew, knew the least about other than just that I knew about it from church history briefly. But I found uh, his thoughts on this really interesting. I, I really hope our listeners will get as much out of it as I did. Yeah, me too. It was it was a really fun interview to have too. So yeah, everybody, I hope you enjoy it. Let me ask you then, let me turn to icons. Um, and I'm going to lay this conversation out two ways, well, with two beginning points. One, Assume that I don't know anything about icons at all. I, I probably know more than your average non-Orthodox, but let's just assume I know nothing. So what is an icon? And then if I do know anything about icons, here's what I do know as that person. Um, I know that they're probably idolatry, that you probably worship them and that um, hold them on the same level as scripture or as word of God. I mean, so those, you know, my impression of them is they're probably dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, let's start with the first one. What is icons? Okay. And then, <laughs> or, or I guess however you feel is best to go there. Really quickly, I, I have to address the second part. That might be the best way to go. <laughs> yeah. You know, the funny thing is, is that, that all of those thoughts occur even to iconographers. Mm. And there are times where that's absolutely true. And to talk about icons is, again, to take something that really has roots into every single part of the tradition to even begin to kind of extract it means that you have to talk about the Old Testament, you have to talk about the tabernacle, you have to talk about the temple, you have to talk about near eastern pagan religions at the time of the second temple you have to talk about middle eastern culture you have to talk about paganism you have to talk about what do we mean by the scandal of particularity what do we mean by god has a face all of these things they're huge questions and and volumes and volumes and volumes of stuff i think the best place to start is that Every iconographer is aware of all of those issues. I don't, I don't personally know of any iconographer that doesn't have to answer those questions for themselves unless they were raised in an environment where orthodoxy is so all-pervasive 
that they've never even asked the question. But for us, especially in the West, yeah. So first, what is an icon? Well, icon just comes from the Greek word ikon, which means image. It is a word that really has taken on a fairly specific meaning, especially in a Christian context, that an icon is usually a painted image of Christ, one of the saints, one of the events from scriptural history, one of the events from church history. They are painted. They are sometimes sculpted. The medium in this case does not matter. Icons can be on wood. They can mosaic. They can be stone. They can be marble. There's jeweled icons. It's not what they're made out of. It's the image. Does the image conform to the tradition and teaching of the Orthodox Church? And if it does, then it's got its first gold star. So we could say that I paint an image of Christ. Is that image painted in accordance with the canons? Because there are literally rules, canons of the church for painting an icon. Am I praying? Am I fasting? Am I keeping to my prayer rule? Am I using for a model an existing icon? This is not like art in that it should be purely expressive of the imagination of the artist. That is actually quite frowned upon. This is not about getting our ego through our fingers out onto a board. This is about as best we can in our frail clay vessels through prayer and the God-given talent to express a visual representation of the truth expressed in scripture and the tradition of the church. So here's what I'm understanding. Tell me if this is correct. It's a little bit like a retelling of a story from scripture. So if I were to retell to my children the story of Jesus calming the sea in Matthew. Which is an icon that I've done. Oh, wonderful. Then I can readily understand that there are better and worse ways to tell that story. For example, in that telling of the story in Matthew, I believe it's the one in Matthew, the disciples wake Jesus up, he calms the sea, and then he turns to them and says, Oh, ye of little faith. There would be something I would notice incorrect about telling it the other way around. As if Jesus got up and looks at the disciples and said, you, and then calms the sea. And so there are rules, if you will, not necessarily in this sense, canons of the church, but that's what I'm understanding that an icon is like a visual telling of the story or some other truth and that there are rules that govern it. Partly, I take it so that it doesn't tell a false thing. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely right. And it's interesting that the spirit was whispering in your ear about using that specific icon because... To get that point across exactly what you were saying, time as a linear construct does not exist in iconography. So in the same icon of the same event of Jesus calming the storm, he's shown both standing up rebuking the storm and asleep on a pillow in the boat. Both of those aspects of the story are very important for the exact reason that you said. To make an accurate telling of that story visually, you would need to do that. Now, I've seen beautiful Rembrandts, I think is is just breathtaking, of the calming of the storm, and it's one half of one second out of the whole story. It's very dramatic. All the clouds and the waves and, and Christ raising up his hand. 
it's, it's spectacularly beautiful, but it's not an icon. What the icon is saying is vastly more important than the technical skill being demonstrated. This is just a ignorance question. So the Rembrandt, the Rembrandt is not an icon. Would in the Orthodox Church is it the the simple question is, it's okay to paint that though? Yes, or is that something oh, yeah. they would consider Absolutely. you would consider not okay? Well, I don't. It, when you say in the Orthodox world, you're going to get folks on all extremes. Okay, I'm a pretty middle of the road guy. Um, is it okay to do beautiful? what would be called, you know, secular paintings and artwork, in my opinion? Absolutely. I think it can be very telling about the spiritual life of the person that's painting it. One thing that an artist can't do is lie while they're painting. It's one of the reasons why iconographers need to be fasting and praying and in good standing with the church and with God while they're painting icons, because it shows. If I try to paint a face while I'm grumpy, I can't hide it. I may not see it. I may think it's fine. Someone else will see it and notice it. It's it's just part of the gig. I think most artists would say that iconographers usually don't refer to themselves as artists. The mentality is a little bit different. I think that most of us would consider ourselves, on one hand, more craftsmen, because it's a technique that has specific steps to it. Um, you're making an object. It's not about personal expression. It's, it's more of a craft. So how do icons operate or not operate? That's the wrong word. How do you, what are the, what, how do you use them? What is their purpose? Um, and, and I think specifically the question I want to ask is like, what is their purpose or use in prayer? Let me ask you this. Mm. Do you have a picture of any of your family on the wall? Mm -hmm. Yes. Several actually. Okay. What's its purpose? Pictures on the wall. <laughs> my wife is going to laugh when she listens to this because we had a early on in our relationship. I wanted to buy a wooden frame for us before we were married. And I had a picture of her and she would not let me buy a wooden frame. That was too permanent. And, uh, that was very funny. That, that but now we have, <laughs> we now have pictures of ourselves uh -huh. and our marriage and on the walls. Mm -hmm. And it's to remind me it's, um, it, it brings back the emotions sometimes mm -hmm. of that moment. Um, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Would you put your fist through it? No. Why not? It's only a piece of paper. Um, it's valuable to me. It 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 represents a relationship. It represents a good memory. Would you think that tearing it in half makes a statement about a real action against the person? Yes. Isn't that interesting? That that's the uh, isn't that the classic uh, romance movie. Yeah, they rip the, they rip rip the, the picture. Yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's the beginning hmm. of how we see icons. It goes far beyond that. But I think that that's the beginning that most people can begin to understand what we're talking about, is that probably most of your listeners would not, after Sunday, take their Bible off the driver, or I'm sorry, off the passenger seat next to them and just throw it in the back seat along with the trash and the McDonald's cups and all that kind of stuff. You wouldn't think about doing that. Well, why not? Because the Bible is important. And exactly. It, there's a certain kind of reverence we have. There's for a it. reverence that's mm -hmm. there. And I am not a Bible highlighter. I, I, mm -mm, no. Um, 
And it, I, I, it literally, you know, kind of gives me the heebies when I see people marking in Bibles. That's just for me. That's not for anyone else. But it's, I think there's an idea that we've lost that Islam has kept. You do not touch the Quran without washing your hands. It's never put on the floor. Does that lapse over into idolatry? Well, possibly, but the ancient Jews were the exact same way. So the word of God in our world as a written object holds reverence for us as very well it should. How far does that go? Well, it went far enough into the Ark of the Covenant. Those poor four guys that were carrying it there, you know, it started to fall over. They put up their hands to stop it and, okay, that's the danger of holiness. Holiness kills, by the way, if you're not ready for it. Words, yes. Special holy objects, yes. Pictures? Pictures is where post-Reformation Western Christians go, <gasps> why is that? Why is it just about it being a picture? Now, to build on this, probably most of your readers have seen pictures of Jesus behind the kid playing baseball. Jesus with the guy slamming the needle into his arm. I mean, depictions of Jesus all over the place. The interesting thing to me as an iconographer looking at it is then it's not about giving place to God as being depictable in paint. That's not what it's about. People do that all over the place and no one blinks an eye. One of the differences, though, is that the more formalized it becomes, the more uncomfortable people get. So if it's Jesus looking just like some guy you went to college with who has medium length hair and a brown beard and for some reason is wearing a big white dress, we're totally okay with that. But if we do Jesus forward facing with a halo, we get antsy. If it's painted in such a way, and this is one of the things that again, iconography tries to do, is we really try to address what's called the scandal of particularity. And it's a great phrase. The scandal of particularity. I want to write a book called that. Yeah. <laughs> Basically what it is, is the ultimate scandal. As Christians, what we're saying is that at a particular time, in a particular place, God had a particular height, a particular smell, a particular voice, a particular eye color, a particular everything. Not generalized, not representing kind of a composite of humanity or anything. No, God looked like that. Oh, you mean God kind of generally looked like a human? No, God, God, the triune God, the same one from Sinai, the same one that walked in the garden. God looks like this, particularly that size nose, those kinds of eyebrows. Now, the first thing people will say is, well, how do you know? what God looked like. Well, a couple of things. One is that this is going to fall into the realm of faith and tradition, but the more that scientists study the Shroud of Turin, the more scientists are converting to Christianity. It's not working the other way around. The other is tradition. We have icons from before the 500s. Guess what? 
you can point and say, that one's Jesus. Because the consistency is there. The hair, the general shape of the face, the pointedness of the beard, the fact that there's a little separation usually in the middle of the beard, the way that one eyebrow is a little bit higher than the other eyebrow. These are all things that are not just an artist kind of doing things. This is like saying, if I wanted to paint a painting of Brandon, I would need to look at pictures. I would need to at least talk to people who knew you, who could say, well, you know, that that's pretty good. That's pretty good. But his hair was more like this. One of the things that we also forget and that we had good reason to forget because it's really only in this century that it's really, well, actually the last century, it's the 21st century now, I keep forgetting. If I asked you the question, what does the inside of a first century synagogue look like? What would you guess? Goodness. Um, I would guess it was made of stone. I would guess that there were some benches and... I would guess there's some manner of altar where the scrolls were held and the scriptorium thing. Those are some of my guesses. No. Would it ever occur to you that the walls were covered with icons? Mm -mm, no. Well, if you go on to the Google and look up synagogue Euro Europa, you will see a picture. And this was discovered in a situation where the interior was filled with rubble. Um, much like a church in Rome, which is the only reason that we have the example of the iconography from there. But this was a place that was buried for more than a thousand years, and it dates from the first century. This is a Jewish synagogue. Now, if anyone in the first century was going to be like, oh, we don't have images, it's going to be a Jewish synagogue. Nope. Icons all over the place. What... What begins to happen is we have to start questioning really our ideas about imagery, our ideas about art, our ideas about the role of art, and really our ideas about what do we mean by idolatry. I think that ideas about idolatry are filtered through our own experience of not being idolaters. We kind of forget that what is being talked about in the Old Testament is not so much the idea that this artistic representation is what I visualize when I think of this non-physical, non-material, spiritual entity that my imagination has captured down into looking like this bullheaded guy. That's a modern, very modern way of viewing paganism. We've taken Christianity and most of the mono theistic religions. And what we've done is we realize God is not confined to a place, although in some ways he is. God does not have a face, except when he does. You know, we've spiritualized God to be invisible and not circumscribed in any way. That's because of monotheism. Pagans, and not neo-pagans, real honest-to-goodness old pagans, good old pagans, back when they had backbone. Their God was limited to the space occupied by that little statue, usually a statue or a figurine. It was not just the fact that that was a representation of this much larger spiritual entity. No, the God was contained within that space. This is what makes Jesus' statement to the Samaritan woman 
I tell you in truth, the time is coming when God will be worshipped not in this place or even in Jerusalem. We would have to talk about what the entire Jewish idea about what was truly present at the temple. This goes on and on and on and on, unpacking all of this kind of stuff. But that the worship was directed towards the object. There was nothing more to direct it to. That's not icons. That's, yeah, I was just going to ask. So this connects to icons. This disconnects icons from that entire mm. idea. Okay. How do we use icons in prayer? Sorry, like everything else with this, there's all kinds of stuff that has to go around with the answer. Right. How icons are connected in prayer is kind of interesting. To the Orthodox, icons are connected in prayer in the same way that scripture would be connected in prayer if you were evangelical and you were reading your Bible and you decided that that moved you and you wanted to pray. Okay, let me pause, pause you there. I don't want to make it draw a connection to everything you just said because we said a lot of stuff. The distinction between idolatry and icon or an idol and icon, from what I understand you're saying is in an idol, the God, the spiritual presence is in that thing. And when I bow down to that thing or look at that, thing, whatever I do to that thing, I'm worshiping that God because he is in that thing. An icon is not doing that at all. An icon is a visual telling of a passage of scripture or spiritual idea. And what it does is not, God is not in it in the idolatry way. Rather, it's I'm reading along or I'm looking along and it prompts a prayer. It prompts a movement. It prompts, I may, and I think what, where you'll go with this, and this is maybe the open door for you to go there. If this is where I'm, if I'm heading in the right direction, it's like, I can hear God through it. Just like I can hear God through reading the gospel of John. Sure. Okay. Maybe one, an additional way to look at this, to tie it in, to the first idea about, you know, the picture of grandma in the wall, it is a reminder of a reality. So whether it's squiggles on paper, which we interpret as letters and then interpret as words, the squiggles are just different. The icon is not only a reminder, the icon is not only perhaps a impetus to prayer, but it's primarily, this is where words fail. Because as I'm talking, I'm thinking any word that I say is not going to capture it. The truth of God's revelation to man exists beyond the pages of scripture. But the book is the entrance. The totality of God's revelation to man about his love, his presence, salvation, salvation history, the incarnation. An icon provides an entrance in the same way that scripture does. Visually, the way that scripture used to do audibly. This is the other thing that we have to you know, this is the other elephant sitting in the room. One of the things that um, I try not to be too snarky about it, the idea that all the early Christians were sitting around reading a Bible is, I don't even know what to say about that. But the truth is people heard the gospel by hearing it. 
Hearing is a very different experience than reading. Seeing is a very different experience than reading. We have great sympathy for people that lose their hearing. It's not equal to the sympathy that we have for people that lose their sight. We know how important seeing is. We also know how important it is to convey information. One picture is worth a thousand words. If we were to walk out the door and look at the vista that we have here, could you possibly verbally explain to someone all that's going on there? Absolutely not. Icons do the same thing. The other participant in the icon, though, is the hand of the Spirit. Both in, God willing, the hand of the iconographer, which is probably not known to the iconographer. The iconographer will not know if he has ever painted an icon. On the great getting up day, he may find out those were all nice pictures, but you never painted an icon because it doesn't have the spirit behind it. Other iconographers may go, you got one. That was pretty good. Out of a thousand, that's good. Because the third participant in all of this is God. It's the spirit moving through the icon. Again, it's not tied up with the talent of the iconographer, the worthiness of the iconographer or anything else. God decides, I have a message to get to someone. I'm going to use this. Now, the funny thing is we would not hesitate about that thought at all if what we were talking about were scribbles as letters. But the minute that we're talking about scribbles as an image, we get all, yikes! And I think that that really truly is because of this incredible fear that we have of being idolaters. It's, you know, it's right up there at the top of the Ten Commandments. Um, and so we have, we have justification to be afraid of that. But how many of us have made an idol out of our job, our kids, our body, our health, our politics, mm -hmm. our home, whatever it is? It's interesting to me that we're not nearly as concerned about that. And yet we see around us today at this exact moment, devastation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think historically there's some post-reformational stuff that happened with that, uh, the way that uh, the, the commandment not to make a graven image is understood that could be unpacked. But as you said, I mean, these are things that are... <laughs> You have to go back all the way to the beginning on all of these things if we're going to really get the full context. Right. So um, thank you for taking the time to do this. I think I think what's most interesting to me, and, I, and it will be fun to hear if people respond to these, what's most interesting is that the answers that I got to the questions that I asked were different than I think what, what I would have expected, right? That, I love that there's not a simple answer. <laughs> to me, that's the whole beauty of these conversations. And to ask all of us to allow the answer to unfold is part of the part of the joy of doing this and part of where I think, well, honestly, that's where I think the shift begins to happen 
when we start encountering God. There's such a parallel there. I go to God so often with, give me this answer. I want, I want to know. And he's like, well, let's, let's take a pause for the next 10 years. (laughs) So, um, thank you. Is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't ask you that I needed to ask you? Wow. That's a great question. I think that if there was a question that needed to be asked that neither one of us thought of, but that has been whispered to me is this monks, icons, liturgies, ancient church history, all of this stuff. Why in the world does that matter to me now? Why do we need monks? Why do we need icons? Why do we need any of this stuff? We don't need any of this stuff. Perhaps. Maybe we don't. Maybe we really are just LARPers yearning for the Middle Ages. And, you know, when we thought everything was good, except for, you know, we do we do like plumbing and, and regular food. But I think the answer to that question is, where are we at without it? Where would we be? If a monastery was something that was not an exotic, far off, had to drive hours to get there. What if every county had a couple? They used to in Europe. All the major cities started basically with monasteries. What if having a monk or a nun to go talk to was not something that was exotic? You had someone whose job, who literally spent their life studying prayer, scripture, theology. What I say we do is is we put our toes in the spiritual pool to check the temperature. And that our great joy is to share that. It's not easy. It can't be answered in one sentence. It can't even begin to be answered in hours-long conversation but at least there's someone there to have the conversation with. What would it be like if through the study of iconography, we really, really deeply reintegrated into our theology, the idea that we are made in the image and likeness of God? What would that do? How would everything look different if we realized that person is created in the image and likeness of God? And that that's not just a pithy little coffee cup saying. What would it mean if we thought that not only is scripture informational, but that it moves beyond that and it's something that you can literally go over one sentence for hours and then take it to prayer for more hours? What would it look like if we actually believed that God acted in our lives in a sacramental way? What if the God that was big enough to become a particular human being was also big enough to make the waters of baptism actually wash you, holy oils to actually heal you, bread and wine to actually become him? We believe in the full reality, totality, and efficacy of the sacraments. I don't know how people get through life without it. 
we get to go and commune literally with Jesus every day. If we're not spiritually blasted by that encounter, that's because we have our blinders on. That's not, that has nothing to do with what's going on in the altar. So those are the kinds of things and the kind of questions where it's like, why does any of this matter? I don't know. But let's look around and see why it might be better to bring it back. Mm. So that would be, yeah, thank that you. That. That's very, very, boy, I'd love to keep talking on that. But um, thank you for your time and for those that are listening. Uh, may the grace of Christ go with you wherever the road takes you. Amen. Thanks for listening to this final section of the interview with Father Joseph. I want to let you know that we have a couple of contemplative prayer retreats coming up at Father Joseph's monastery this spring. You can find out all about those at signpostin.org, and we'd love to have you come and join us and maybe even meet him yourself. And as always, thanks to all of our supporters who make this podcast and everything we do possible. 